I invite you to keep your Bibles open to the passage. Pastor Anderson just read for us moments ago, that being 1 John chapter 2, as our text this morning will indeed begin there in verse 12. And to quickly bring you all up to speed as to where we are in our study of 1 John, we've examined the Apostle John over the last several weeks writing to the Christians who have been tempted to listen to those false teachers there in the church who denied that Jesus, the Son of God, was indeed the Christ. John did this by reminding these brothers and sisters that he and the other apostles, they heard, they saw, they touched Christ. John is emphasizing that his claims of knowing Jesus are not made up. He's writing to those who claim to know Christ but are not living with such knowledge. They are persuaded by very persuasive folks that what they've previously known about Christ and what has been previously taught about Christ isn't exactly correct because they have, the false teachers, have the knowledge that even John and the other apostles do not and did not possess. And in doing so, he further, John further includes language directed at the Gnostics of the false teachers by seemingly quoting them when he writes, He who says... And it's his way of testing is if they they truly know Christ. And among other things, John told them that it's impossible to be a part of the Christian community, the one of which Jesus died to save. You cannot be, he told us, you cannot be a part of these people, of this community, if you hate your brother or your sister. You cannot hate someone in this family while claiming to be in Christ. But the problem here, which we will see the apostle address this morning, is that up to this point, his letter has been very vague in its direct recipients, who he is writing to, which is why John in this passage addresses particular parties, and in doing so, leaving no doubt as to who he is writing to now. Furthermore, it's, it's also easy to imagine John is keenly aware of how his words could have been wrongly perceived by some reading his letter, those of which he was not directly writing to. And now in verses 12 through 17, he is writing to not necessarily clear the air, so to speak, as some very likely needed to hear what he had to say. But rather, he's addressing certain parties. John addresses little children, fathers, young men. And while there is not a consensus among scholars as to why he does this, the most rational conclusion is that John is using a rhetorical device to indicate qualities that ought to be true to all believers. And he does so by breaking down these qualities into three stages of life. Children, fathers, and young men. All Christians, shares Charles Dodd, all Christians should have the innocence, he says, of childhood, the strength of youth, and the mature knowledge that comes with and from age. So before we look at God's word together this morning, let's pray and ask for his help and blessing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would help us to come to your word with reverence, O Lord, with a willingness to hear and to be taught and to grow by your spirit in Christ's likeness as disciples and as worshipers of you, almighty God. O Lord, we ask that you would use us for your kingdom wherever you place us and that we would be faithful witnesses for Christ's sake and in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's safe to say that John's words so far have been somewhat severe. We've seen him say things that would be even difficult today for some to hear. He's called folks liars. He's called folks blind. 
Because of this, John knows it's possible his readers with sensitive consciences could have read what he wrote. And having read it, they could have come away thinking that maybe they weren't believers after all. That their lives did not reflect those such evidences of faith, of a change of heart. So here he wants those readers to not increase their doubts, but to know he's writing to them so that they may actually increase their assurance. That they may increase their dependence on Christ. To commit yourselves to living for Christ in a way that accords with Scripture. And how does John do this? But we'll see him do it in two ways. First in verses 12 through 14, John explains to them that he's writing to them not because he doubts their knowledge of God, but quite the opposite. He says, this is actually because you know God that I'm writing to you. He then goes on in verses 15 through 17, demonstrating how his words are to be received then by those who are in faith, by those who possess a faith of Christ. Receive how his words are should be received by Christians. These points thus provoked one commentator to state the impulse to write this does not spring from doubt of their Christian standing or of their progress in the Christian experience. He says, but that on the contrary, it's it's John's confidence in their Christian character and attainments that inspires the Apostle John to write as he does. He does so using six statements we'll see this morning about his readers. Six total statements that are broken up into two sections. The present tense, I write, or I am writing. And the perfect tense, I have written, I write. Each containing three statements. Look at me at verse 12, as well as the last last portion of verse 13. John says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Are forgiven you for his name's sake, and because you have known, he says, the Father. Immediately, we're told why John is writing. Because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. This is classic John as he's previously covered this theme in chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 2. John Boyce comments whether we take John's address to little or to dear children as referring only to those who are young in the faith or to all believers. The meaning is the same. For all who have believed in Christ have known the experience of having had their sins forgiven for Christ's sake. Boyce concludes, as well as know the Father. He says they also know God. They know the Father. Further, one of John's favorite designations for those of whom he's writing to is children. He loves to address his people as children. The term in Greek expresses the love that John had for all to whom he wrote. It's not age-specific. Therefore, it's safe to say that the phrase being employed more so as a term of of endearment than it is of John addressing a demographic of age. Because he uses children throughout his epistles to describe all those under his leadership. To this point, David Allen notes at the time of writing 1 John, the apostle was probably in his 80s, maybe older by that time. And he says, at this point of age, when you get to that age... Virtually everyone is younger than you are and can be referred to, he says, as children, which I think is fair. What John is telling us here is, is almost, or is that almost, without exception, these are the first two things, new Christians. Those who have believed on Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the only Son of God. These are the first two things that they are aware of 
The forgiveness of sins through the work of Christ on the cross. That's first. The forgiveness of sins through the work of Christ on the cross. And secondly, as children of God who beforehand not only feared but also didn't know him, now know him as Abba. They now know him as Father. The Apostle Paul helps to reemphasize this point in Romans 8, verses 15 through 16, where Paul wrote, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children, Paul says, children of God. And here we're given another moment of where the Apostle John employs a pastoral tenderness, where he gently reminds those early readers of what they already know. He's not rebuking them. He's pastorally, he's gently, he's kindly, he's lovingly reminding them. Listen to how he reminded them that what he's saying isn't new. Listen to how he doesn't use a heavy hand or or mock or shame them. In verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. He's lovingly reminding them that they entered into this communion with the Father through the confession of their sins and received forgiveness from the Father in Christ the Son. He's just pointing them back to a point he's already made earlier. You've confessed your sins and he is faithful. Paul, or John tells us he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. And then he reminds them to remember what he said in verse 2 of chapter 2. That this was done, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. They're forgiven in Christ. Because of Jesus' atoning death, his sacrificial self-giving of himself, God through Jesus, does what? He forgives, John says, your sins. Your standing is clear, you're forgiven. He's one verse into this slight discourse directed at addressing specificities for the readers rather than leaving them guessing. And he's already talking about us here and John saying, guys, this is, this is what you've always believed. You've confessed it. You've expressed it. I've seen it lived out. You've professed to believe with your tongues. Jesus' blood has cleansed you. You know this. Remember whose you are and what Christ, therefore, has given you. This would help to explain why John uses the term little or dear children because those who have experienced this heart change And forgiveness are indeed the children of God. But sometimes as children do, they do what? We as parents know often. They forget. And like a patient father who lovingly reminds his kids throughout the day what they already know, what they've already been taught, he's reminding them whose they are and how they became his He says, your sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross. When you confess your sin, you're brought back into fellowship with God. Verse 9 tells us, but what Christ has done for you with the cross, he says, for his name's sake, that remains unbroken. That will not change. You're forgiven on the basis of who he is, of who Christ is, as well as what he has done for you. And this phrase, for his namesake, is is seen throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 23, David writes, the Lord, we know this verse, the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And how does David conclude that verse? For his namesake. 
Similarly, similarly, Asaph, in Psalm 79, verse 9, he prayed, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. John is nudging his readers to remember that their sins are not forgiven for their sake, yet because of the work of Christ, And for the sake of his name, he says, this is why you're forgiven. It's not your merit, it's his. He then goes on to address mature Christians there in the first half of verse 13. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him, he says, who was from the beginning. And John John is saying, you've come to know literally the one who was from the beginning. That's another simple reminder. It's not listen to the false teachers who taught that those who professed to know him were deceived because only they had the facts sorted out correctly. They taught you incorrectly. Only we know. We possess this knowledge. You can't. And what you've learned from them, it's not true. So John is emphasizing that, no, you guys have had it right all along. And while no one doubted that the Father was from the beginning, here John is likely stressing the preexistence of Christ, of Jesus. And either way, he's reminding those mature in faith, he's assuring them of their knowledge of the Godhead. The mark of Christian maturity within the context of this verse is knowledge of God the Father through God the Son, Jesus Christ. John's saying, forget what the disruptors, what the false teachers are trying to teach you about what you don't know. There's a reason you don't know it. It's not true. John's saying, you all know that the Son, to know him is to know the Father and vice versa. This is what you've been taught from the beginning. You professed it with your lips. You know this. Don't forget it. John then goes on to say in verse 13b, I write to you young men because he says you have overcome the wicked one. And here we're told that young men have overcome the the wicked. John says the wicked one or the evil one. And this is important not just for young men but for young women, not just for fathers but also for mothers. Why? Because the masculine form here, as John will mention it four more times in this epistle, in this letter, is indicating that he's he's referencing Satan. And John is reminding his people that their faith in the person and in the completed work of Christ and his atoning work has overcome the devil and therefore has purchased their redemption. John will will go on to say in verse 5 of chapter 5, Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a theme theme that runs throughout this first epistle. It reminds you, I hope, of Isaiah 40, verse 31, doesn't it? Isaiah wrote, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. It's a wonderful verse. They shall mount up with wings, he says, like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk. And how does he conclude it? They shall walk and they shall not do what? Faint. John, comments in M. Thompson, does not write that they will overcome or that they can overcome, but that they have overcome. It's definitive. You have overcome. They have been transformed from death to life, from darkness to light. Christians have overcome not by means of their own moral achievement, but through the victory over the power of evil one in Christ's death as well as in Christ's resurrection. John knows what that victory implies, doesn't he? 
He's already told us in verse 1 of chapter 2 that this doesn't mean that those in Christ live without sin. He's not saying that because youth, 2 Timothy 2.22 tells us, youth comes with strong desires that need to be overcome. And in Christ, the victory, John reminds us, again he's reminding, the victory in Christ has already been won. Although he says there is still fighting in this life to be done. In his book, The Way of Life, the great American Presbyterian Charles Hodge wrote, A Christian who makes no progress in holiness must essentially, he says, be defective. It's a good way to put it. The surest evidence of such progress is an increase of strength, strength of faith, strength of purpose, strength of principle, strength, he says, to do right, to resist evil, to endure suffering. The people of God go from strength, Hodge says, to strength. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. This is what John is talking about. John's saying victory, yes, over the evil one at conversion. As Christ has conquered Satan. He's conquered Satan by his death and resurrection, but also victory. Progress in the Christian life and overcoming worldly temptations. He's saying this is victory today. Is growing in godliness. Is resisting the temptation to sin. These evidences, they manifest themselves in the lives of those who continue to battle each day. And do so, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, to put off their old self as they have put on their new self. They're not doing it alone. So John continues to express one's knowledge in Christ as he says in the first half of verse 14, the same thing he said in the first half of verse 13. He says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I know this isn't Groundhog Day for the apostle. John is simply reemphasizing to those what was explicitly stated right before in verse 13. He says, you know the Father. Those who have already made a profession of faith, having confessed their sin, they know the Father, and they know that the Father's character is unchangeable. It's just a way to reassure the original audience that what they've expressed in the past about knowing God, it's not defective. It hasn't expired, regardless of what those in your midst are trying to teach you about him. But when he moves into addressing again the young men, John does so using two clauses to express the same truth as to how they have overcome the wicked one. Look at what he says. He says, because you are strong. That's the first, because you were strong. And then he says, secondly, and the word of God abides in you. M.M. Thompson comments, by reminding the congregation of who they are and what they have been given, John assures his readers that they can be confident that they know God. So don't question it. You know him. And you can possess this confidence and faith because of Christ. And why can they be confident about knowing God? Because God's character is not like a lava lamp, arbitrarily changing every second. The matter inside the lamp is constantly morphing, isn't it? God, on the other hand, question four, the shorter catechism tells us God is what? Among many things. Catechism tells us he's unchangeable. And as such are the grounds by which he is to be known. That does not change. As God has made himself known in the love, in the person, in the work of his son. God has made himself known in Christ. 
And John is reminding them of the strength that he and that they can confidently have should be and should be drawn from their salvation that is secure in the one who does not change. Whose promise and power is from everlasting to everlasting. Strong in the mighty one, he says, and in the power of his might. This is precisely why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Paul says against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Jesus, John is telling us, Jesus has already done this work for you. And as one commentator put it, it's simple and it's profound. He says, the war is real, but the victory is certain. The war is real, but the victory is certain. And now as we move into verses 15 through 17, John moves from affirmation to exhortation to admonition. In verses 12 through 14, the apostle was very purposefully reassuring his readers as he knew that some would take his prior words the wrong way. Affirming them that he was, he was not questioning their salvation. That was, that was never the purpose of him writing. Rather that the purpose for his writing to them was because they knew the Father. And because of this truth, their sins were forgiven. And doing so, he was preparing them in those three previous verses. He was preparing them for the warnings that followed here in these next three verses. In verses 15, 16, and 17. Having known all that, he says, listen to this. He says, those living in fellowship with God, living with the knowledge of God, keeping his commandments, you know these things. You must continue in your commitment to avoid worldliness. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. So if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God, he concludes, does what? Abides forever. John's echoing that phrase most often used when distinguishing the Christian's relationship to the world. I imagine most of us here have heard this phrase a million times. Maybe not a million, right? Dozens of times, dozens of times. That phrase being in the world, but not of it. And we could argue all day as to what constitutes worldliness, couldn't we? I imagine each of us would have different conclusions of what worldliness looks like. We're not going to do that. I'm going to let Martin Lloyd-Jones do it for us. He says, worldliness means the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today. Who wants to be described as that? The average person today. Maybe if you're living for Christ and his glory, average is great. But when describing worldliness, you're just humming along. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, worldliness is describing the average person living today. And I think we'd have much more success collectively when it comes to defining then how one avoids such worldliness. 
You avoid worldliness when you desire to conform all of your life, right, not to the world, but to the will of God, above the directives, the pull of the world. And while John does not give us the playbook in these verses to do that, what he does show us is that the love of the world and the love for Yahweh God, the love for God of all creation, maker of heaven and earth, for God, he says, you cannot love the world and you cannot love God. He said these two are incompatible together. They cannot coexist. There's no commingling. It's incompatible. One does not love one as well as the other. Do not love the world, John says, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, he says what, is not in him. Immediately, John 3.16 comes to mind. For God so loved the world. So maybe you're asking, is John here saying that God's children are to do less? If God so loved the world, are we not to love it as well? No. Because God's love is demonstrated by the sending of his son. And in doing so, he saves those whom he's called, those bound by the world and its vices. He frees them from them, from their captivity of it. One commentator states regarding John 3.16, he says, Quite simply, loving the world does not mean accepting it as it is. But remaking it, he says, into what is created or what was created by God to be. People living in the realm of life, not death. People living in the realm of life as well as in light, not darkness. Yet here the world, the earth John is speaking of, it still lies in the grip of Satan. And made up of people who do what? Who oppose God. Who ignore God. And whose lives are lived independent of God. They're the command to not love the world or the things of the world. It demands your open rejection of those ways of life that divert from the way that leads you to godliness, that leads you to holiness, that leads you to his will. And in verse 16, John provides some examples of such things to reject. What's he say? He says, well, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. As he says, these are not of the Father, but of the world. These show, comments Howard Marshall, these, these show that John is thinking of the world insofar as it has become fallen and rebellious. The source of desires which stand in opposition to the love of God, which they do. And in, the, in these examples of the sinful world, John here is demonstrating that absolutely anything in the world can become a source of sinful desire. Anything in the world can become a source of sinful desire, even though it is good in and of itself. His first example, the, the lust of the flesh, in a biblical sense here, would hold to, to one's whole nature as a worldly being not only separated but opposed to God, whose rebellion against God craves any, and it doesn't stop there, it's any and every pleasure or desire found in the world. And the basic thought with the second example, that the lust of the eye is of greed. One's desire for things aroused by one seeing of them. Lastly, John uses the pride of life as a way to explain that when your attitude shifts from what God has done for you to what you have done for yourself, you become prideful in and of yourself. 
John then sums up this passage in verse 17, having, having explained the, the possessing of a love for the world and the things of the world. He says it's incompatible with God's nature. And he concludes that you all should not love the world because, he says, the world is passing away. And the lust of it. John says worldliness has no future. It's a dead end. In 2012, Forbes magazine published an article titled The Nine Financiers, a parable about power. And in this article, it described how, according to a legend, in 1923, nine of America's most powerful men met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, Illinois. These men who, if they combined all their assets, controlled more money than the U.S. Treasury, and they included Charles Schwab, the president of America's largest steel company, Samuel Insel, the president of America's largest utility company. Howard Hobson, the president of America's largest gas company. Arthur Cutton, America's greatest wheat speculator. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall was a member of President Warren Harding's cabinet. Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements. Jesse Livermore, America's greatest speculator on Wall Street. And lastly... Ivor Kruger, head of the company who had the world's, believe it or not, greatest monopoly on the production of matches. Yeah. No less than 25 years later, this is 1923, no less than 25 years later, Charles Schwab had died in bankruptcy, having lived on borrowed money for five years before his death. Samuel Insull had died virtually penniless after spending some time as a fugitive from justice. He was on the run. Howard Hobson went insane. Arthur Cutton went bankrupt and died overseas. Richard Whitney was convicted of embezzlement and spent three years and a half in prison. Albert Fall also spent time in prison, and he was only released so that he could go die at home. Leon Frazier, Jesse Livermore, and Ivor Kruger, they each died by suicide. Friends, the world is passing away. You don't need this illustration for me to tell you that. John tells us that. We see it all around us. The world is passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. What a glorious conjunction we're giving here as we conclude this passage. There's a but. But he who does the will of God, John says, abides forever. Our Lord Jesus said himself in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal Jesus said, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy and where thieves do not break in and thieves do not steal from. What sort of a God, asked Martin Luther, what sort of a God is it that not, is not even capable, he says, of defending himself against moths and rust? How then do we apply this text this morning? I've got three points for us. This past Wednesday, folks all over the world celebrated what's become known as Valentine's Day. And it's one of those days, you know the ones where if you don't acknowledge it in some way, you're the weird one, or somehow you're the odd one out, right? I still never really know, even after almost 10 years of marriage, if Julia wants anything on the 4th of July, <laughs> let alone the 14th of, of February. I just assume she, she doesn't because every day in our house is Valentine's Day. It's the truth. It's her. It's not me. It's her. 
But what the culture at large celebrates on that day revolves around those three words, right? We know them all. I love you. The world would argue that those three words are the most important words any one person can say to someone else, even if you just say it to yourself. They'll ask through smart marketing initiatives, are you loving yourselves? Are you loved? Do you love? So they go all out on February 14th with the the love campaigns. Yet what we've observed in our text is that in the world, as they always have, the world, as it always will, the world has it all wrong. And indeed, the theme of love is fitting, providential, as it's addressed throughout the Bible, but nowhere more than here in 1 John. In this letter of only 2,141 words, the word love is used 51 times. And yet here in 1 John, we learn that the the three most important words, the three most powerful words, and oftentimes the three most difficult words to say in the history of creation are not, I love you, but I forgive you. Forgiveness of sins is the one thing that all Christians have in common. It's fundamental to the Christian life and the condition upon which you have fellowship with God. Therefore, your love, your service, and your devotion to Christ should be in light of the sacrifice He, the sacrifice Jesus made for you in order to bring you this forgiveness of your sins. Secondly, How have you let the world, how have you let your flesh, and how have you let the devil grab a hold of your senses? Yes, it's a broad question, but the truth is for some of you, getting out of bed is a difficult enough task in and of itself. Sure, maybe your body is failing, but for others, you're debilitated by the world around you. You're anxious for yourself. You're anxious possibly for your spouse. You're anxious for your children. You're nervous about your future and what could go wrong today. All the possibilities, there's a litany of them. You let the worries of this world cloud your control or cloud your your emotions, controlling them. You, You question your faith and whether or not the God of your forefathers is even good. Does he love you? Friend, I urge you to take comfort in the encouragements the Apostle John laid before you this morning. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. He's already done the work for you. You have a saving knowledge of God the Father, and you know his Son. You're strong not in yourself. He's not asking you to be strong in yourself. But you're strong in the Lord, and in and through Christ your Savior, you are victorious over the devil. Take heed of the words written by the One of the twelve, the apostle James, James said, submit to God. And in doing so, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to your Father in heaven, and he promises to draw near to you. The war is real, but the victory is certain. And lastly, let me ask You all very pointedly, do you love the world? Are your principles, are your pursuits, are your values, desires, shaped by the value systems John spoke of in Revelation when describing Babylon? Pagan and materialistic, 
For the Christian, the command is clear. You cannot love the world and love God. You must therefore continually refuse, reject, deny, and decline the pull from the world's constant tug to fit you, because this is what it wants to do. It wants you to get into its template. I implore you this morning to take to heart the words again from James. James said, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And ask yourselves, do you desire that which is passing away? That which we've seen as a dead end. Is this what you desire? Or do you desire that which abides forever? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us your truth. Exalt your name in our lives. Help us by the power of your spirit, Lord, to apply those words from the Apostle Paul to our hearts when Paul said to live as Christ and to die as gain. May we do this for your glory, for we ask it.